Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to church. Great to see you this morning. It's my privilege to greet you today. My name is Otto Ramos. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. Welcome to those of you joining us online. If this is one of your first times joining us, for those of you online, you can check us out at vlchurch.com. There is a Are You New Here tab on our front page. If you could click on that and let us know that you're here, we'll connect with you sometime this week. For those of you that are here in person, if you'd like to let us know that you're here, you can uh, connect with us today. Fill out one of those communication cards that can be found on the seat back in front of you. And if you have some time afterwards, please come see me in the Welcome Center. We have a free gift for you just for visiting with us uh, this morning. I only have uh, one thing that I need to say to you this morning. If you have come to worship the Lord uh, uh, through your tithes and offerings, you can do that right now. And you can give online, you can give via text, or you can give as you exit the sanctuary today. But that's all I have for you uh, this morning. And so can I ask you to stand today? And in preparation for worship, let's bow for a word of prayer. Let's pray together. Father God, we believe that every good and perfect gift is from you, coming down from you, our Father in heaven. You are a God who does not change like shifting shadows, says the book of James. And so we thank you for being a God who is a giver, and our lives are blessed beyond measure because of it. We are blessed because you once gave your one and only son that we might know that nothing could ever separate us from you and your love. And that is one reason why, among so many others, that we've come to worship you now. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's worship him together.
Invite his presence in here now. Come thou fount of every blessing. Come thou fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy grace. The streams of mercy never ceasing. Call for songs of loudest praise. So we sing. Teach me some melodious sonnet Sung by flaming tongues above Praise the mount I'm fixed upon it Mount of thy redeeming love yes. I was a Lord, take and seal it, seal it for 
last verse together. Let's declare it. This is how Christ found us and brought us back in. I was lost in utter darkness till you came and rescued me. I was bound by all my sin when your love came and set me free. That's why I sing. Now my heart can sing a new song. Now my heart has found a home. Now your grace is always with me. And I'll never be alone. Amen. What an encouraging thought today. That Christ has freed us. And his grace is always with us. And will never be alone. So this morning as we've asked him to come into this place. We've invited him in and we've thanked him for his grace. We're going to turn back more praise on him and just tell him, I love you, Lord. I love you this morning. God, you're worthy. You poured out so much on us. And this morning, we want to pour back on you our love. And as you do this morning, I encourage you because I believe that as you worship, there's going to be a spirit of peace and a spirit of rest that comes over this room today. I don't know if that's for somebody in particular, if that's for this room in general. But I believe as we lift up a song of love to the Lord this morning, his spirit of peace and his spirit of rest is going to be in this place. Lord, we love you. I just love I just love you, God. I just love you. Oh, I just love you, God. I just love you. Yes, I do. I just love you, God. I just love you. I just love you, God. Bless your name, no matter what. 
If emptiness is all I've got, Jesus, it's yours. Oh, Jesus, it's yours. Oh, let this be my sacrifice, a yielded heart, clean and contrite. No matter what this worship cost, Jesus, it's yours. Oh, Jesus, it's yours. I just love you. I just love you, God. I just love you. I just love you.
For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Father God, we are the recipients of your great love, a love that did not spare your own Son. You gave your most precious possession to us, not to be a gift that was esteemed, but instead a gift in Christ Jesus who was despised and rejected by men and who humbled himself and died for the very people that he came to save. What a costly, costly love you have displayed toward us. We have been the recipients of great love. We love today, brothers and sisters in Christ, because he first loved us. Lord Jesus, I pray that there would never, ever be a problem for people who have been loved so much to express that love in return. May our religion never be cold and dead. But as we have been encouraged today, let it burn with passion like a fire. Because, Lord Jesus, your demonstration of love deserves our everything. So, Lord, let us love you in this place today so that we can bring your love to the world tomorrow and let what happens in church happen outside these walls. We ask these things in the precious, matchless name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, amen. Amen. God bless you. You may be seated. Young disciples, at this time, you may be dismissed to head on down the hall. You will be in Acts 13 right along with us this morning. Church, it's with a heavy heart today that I need to share some news with you. Uh, Some of you may have already received this news, but it is relatively fresh. Yesterday afternoon, uh, the Victory Life family lost someone who has been about as instrumental and as faithful to the life of Victory Life Church as anyone. It was not unexpected, but yesterday afternoon, we lost Kathy Smith. Kathy has made her way into her reward with the Lord Jesus in heaven. But for us who remain, it is a heavy loss. 
Of course, Kathy was a founding member of Victory Life Church, one of the most passionate and wonderful Bible teachers that this church has ever had, longtime head of our women's ministry, and just a faithful servant of the Lord, such a generous, generous spirit. Uh, down the hall right now, our oldest, longest-running Sunday school class uh, that her husband, Kim, has led for many, many years is meeting. I, I don't know if he's here today. I would doubt it. It's possible, but I would doubt it. But we just want to keep Kim Smith and Kim and Kathy's children, uh, Patrick and Melanie, in our prayers. Of course, she is the sister of our longtime children's director, Spring Kiesler, and, uh, and the aunt of our current children's director, Jody Kiesler. And so our prayers are with that family today. We sit here in part because of Kathy's service to the Lord today. That's part of the reason that this church is a church. So before we get started on our message today, would you just join me in a word of prayer for the Smith family? And, uh, and then we'll get into our message today. Heavenly Father, Lord, we should never stop giving honor to whom honor is due. Great honor to you, Lord Jesus, for who you are and what you have been to us. But also, Lord, to honor faithful servants who served in your name. Lord, we thank you for Kathy and the ministry she has had among us. And the days for honoring her and eulogizing her will be ahead. But Lord, it would be wrong to share this passing unmarked today. Lord, we pray that you would be with her family. Give them comfort and peace at this time. And Lord, we thank you that your promises to Kathy have been already made true. For she's seen her Savior face to face. We thank you that her reward is secure because of the work you did on the cross and by your resurrection. We bless your name. Amen. Amen. As I mentioned to you a few minutes ago, if you'll turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 13, I'd be much obliged. We're going to be in 1313 and following this morning. And we started a series last week, for those of you who could not be with us, uh, called Into the World, Lessons in Light Shining from the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, perhaps the greatest evangelist of all time, perhaps, we don't know that for certain, these are things you can't put a quantitative measure on. Uh, it's qualitative, but he won a lot of people to Jesus, started a lot of churches, did a lot of work to shine his light in the world. So as we study the missionary journeys, the evangelistic enterprises of the Apostle Paul and his cohorts, we are taking a master class in how to tell people about Jesus today and how to win them to Christ today. And today we're going to get to some major massive ingredients in order to win folks to Christ. This is going to be an extended passage this morning. We're going to break it down into five sections, five bite-sized pieces for you today, because we're going to get as close to a methodology of sharing the, sharing the Lord and sharing the gospel as we're going to get in this series. So I would warn you today, if you are a note-taker, take notes. If you're not a note-taker, those offering envelopes that are in front of you, they fold out really nicely into a notes page. I know because I drew on them for years as a child while I was bored in church. So go ahead and, and, and open one of those up. I would even suggest that if you want to, you can write on that extra piece of paper in the back of your Bible. You're always like, what is this page for? It's for this sermon today, I promise you, all right? Because there's a lot here. There's five different ingredients today to what we believe to be some of the things that the Lord has laid out for us to help us shine our light in the world and follow the command of Jesus. Because you got to get the ingredients right or things won't turn out the way they should. Last night, I made my grandpa Jack Mikko's Italian wedding soup. 
and it was delicious on a cold winter night. Now, there was a couple of things that my grandpa made absolutely fabulous, and one of them was his wedding soup. In fact, when my grandpa made a big vat of wedding soup, and my grandparents would put that in the refrigerator and some big old Tupperwares, people would find excuses to show up to my grandparents' house at lunchtime because you knew that you were going to get something that was absolutely fantastic. And so that recipe has been passed down through the generations. So last night, I put my olive oil in the pan, and I started sautéing my onions and my garlic, and right now you heard a scream. Did you hear it? You know, that, that was my aunts and uncles saying, you don't put diced onion in that wedding soup. It came from Florida. It came from Atlanta. It came from 16th Street right now. My mother is shaking her head watching the live stream, getting ready for second service. There is no onion in there. Well, I like onion in my wedding soup. So I do a little sautéed onion in it. What, is, that, is, that, is that so wrong? Is that so wrong? There's a text message dinging on my desk right now from one of my uncles, but I, 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 I add an ingredient. I sort of changed it a little bit to suit my tastes. And you liked it last night, right, Sienna? It was decent. It was decent. I took the general recipe, and then I took a little bit of me, a little bit of what God has blessed me in, and, and, and told me that I, I just added that to the general recipe. So today, here's the thing. I'm going to give you five elements to the recipe, but oh boy, this recipe's got to be you. You can't just take the recipe and say, well, that's it, finished product. You've got to make it yours and when we do the workshop, that's the tell the story element. You know, join, live, tell on the wall as you walk in. The workshop is where we train and help people become evangelists or better evangelists, all right? Gospel sharers. We talk about making it your own, making evangelism your own. So when I give you the recipe today that Paul gives us on how to shine our light, I want to make this clear. You have to make it your own. You can't do it just how Paul did it. But there's five elements here that I think are really, really good for us to take from the Scripture. So bite-sized pieces, a little bit at a time. Leave your Bible open. Find a perfect way to open that, that offering envelope so it can become a notes page. And let's, let's go in and, and let's, get, let's get a recipe today for some great light shining. Verse 13, chapter 13. By a comedy of errors, I'll be reading out of the New Revised Standard Version today. You're like, that's not what he reads out of. Well, that's what we read out of when I copy and paste the wrong thing from my software. So NRSV this morning, great translation of the Bible. Thank you, Carly, for catching it. Here we go. It says, Then Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. John, Mark as we know him, however, left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia, different Antioch than last week. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading of the law and the prophets, the officials of the synagogue sent them a message saying, Brothers, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, give it. So Paul stood up and with a gesture began to speak. Yes. I like to think the gesture was this. This couldn't have worked out better. Here I am in the synagogue, and they're asking me to preach. Love it. It did work out, didn't it? Like he's sitting there. There's no guarantee that the, that the clerk of the synagogue is going to look at the new guys and go, you want to preach today? But they do, and this was not un, uh, completely uh, unheard uh, of before. We talked last week that Jesus came at just the right time, and part of that was that the Jewish people had dispersed throughout the ancient world. 
There were synagogues in many of the great cities of the ancient world. There were far more Israelites living around the world than there actually were in Judea and Samaria and Galilee. Far more out there. In fact, if memory serves, there was greater populations of Israelites in Babylon and Alexandria, Egypt, than they were in Jerusalem itself. So it's a perfect time to go out and say, hey, our Messiah has come. And we've talked about this before. So if someone came from the outside world and it was clear that they were a brother in Jewish faith or Israelite faith, then it wasn't completely unheard of to say, let's go ahead and give them the pulpit this morning. They would have expected, they would have heard something good from the outside world. What they probably did not expect is that they were going to hear that the Messiah had come and his name was Jesus, but we'll get to that in just a minute. I like the fact that Paul stands up and makes a gesture. I, I, I just like that, that, that we know the story well enough to know Paul had a little bit of flourish to him. He had, he had a, just a tad bit of the ham in him because he makes some kind of gesture to be like, you're going to want to hear this. And he goes ahead and speaks. Now, we don't do this in churches anymore. In fact, I had a man sitting right where Austin Gillig was sitting, oh, five, six years ago, who right after worship, who I'd never seen before, raised his hand and screamed, Pastor, I have a word. And I thought, no, you don't. I don't know you. And so I immediately said, everybody stand up and shake hands and meet somebody today. And he came up and said, I have a word for this church. And I said, I don't know who you are. No, you don't, right? Because it's a different day and age, and we don't know where people are coming from, and we're not quite sure. Now, if you have a word, just let Pastor Otto know, and he'll let me know, and we'll see. And if, if you get a word between, I don't know, Monday and Saturday, you can let us know about that. But we're not usually in the habit of letting st complete strangers have the microphone. It just, sometimes it doesn't turn out great. For Antioch and Pisidia, though, it turned out wonderfully turned out wonderfully. And we're going to see just how wonderfully it turns out. Now, I want to make mention of something that is very important as you look down in your Bible. When we say we set sail from Paphos, and then we came to Perga and Pamphylia, then John Mark left us, and then we moved on to Antioch and Pisidia, we think, yeah, and then we hit Walmart, and then we hit Target, and then we went over to the Acme. We just get this idea in our mind, and then we did this, and then we did that, and then we did that. These guys have traveled big time before cars, before planes, before motorized boats. These guys are traveling. It's slow and it's hard. When we find out that they went from Perga, which is in modern-day Turkey, up into, up into Pisidian Antioch, which is in the region of Galatia, Galatians, in the region of Galatia, we're talking about a, a, a huge trip to elevation 3,600 feet. Now, now, I had to look at the highest elevation in Ohio. It's 1,500 feet. So these guys are heading uphill. This is higher than even the highest elevation in Pennsylvania. These guys climbed a mountain for the gospel. Okay? So before we do anything else, I just want to go back to where we landed last week. You've got to have a plan. And these guys are working their plan. They are working to put themselves in position to share the gospel. They're not just hoping that they'll have the opportunity. They're not sitting back in Antioch of Syria going, well, I hope I get to share with more people. They've made a plan. They're working that plan. The plan is costing them. We kind of just sang it in the last song. Don't, don't let me give you an offering of love, Lord, that costs me nothing. This is costing. This is costing them. Costing them so much that after they come through the island of Cyprus, John Mark pieces out. He's had enough. He's done. We don't know why, but we find out later in the scriptures, Paul sees this as a desertion. It's like, how can you desert us? And if what we suppose last week is true, that John Mark was accompanying them as a minister of the word and able to testify to the resurrection of Jesus, John Mark just made their work harder. 
because they don't have an eyewitness of the resurrection with them any longer. So they've got to convince people of the resurrection using other means. So, so that, that's quite the desertion. These guys are working, and I don't want us to, to overlook that. This is hard, what they're doing. They're traveling in the ancient world, which is tough. Not only are they traveling, they're traveling up into the mountains, all right? And they didn't even have all the coffee that we've drank already this morning. Now, as we mentioned, they don't have to force it. They don't have to push their way. God shows them favor, and they're allowed to speak. Paul gets up, and here we get to see the preaching of Paul. This is exciting. Let's hear what Paul has to say to this group in the synagogue. We're going to be in the middle of verse 16 now. You Israelites and others who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our ancestors and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. For about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance for about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until the time of the prophet Samuel. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin who reigned 40 years. When he had removed him, he made David their king. In his testimony about him, he said, I have found David, son of Jesse, to be a man after my heart who will carry out all of my wishes. Of this man's posterity, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Jesus, as he promised. Now, Paul is going to lay a lot out here, but let's not bury the lead. Paul is presenting Jesus as Savior. There is no gospel unless you present Jesus as Savior. There's a lot of good things that we can do that are good works, as we talked about, from the shine your light passage of Matthew 5 or the shine your light passage of 1 Peter chapter 2. There's a lot of good works we can do, but the greatest of all works on earth is to present Jesus as the Savior that he is. And so that's what Paul is doing. He's presenting, this is the fighting words, if you will, because not everybody's going to agree with him. Not everybody's going to like it that he says it. And, and this, is, this is the word that's going to get him persecuted, kicked out, stoned, beaten, shipwrecked. This word that Jesus is the Savior is what's going to cost him. Now, I'm not, to say, I'm not here to say that other good works are, are not good because the other good works that we do, they represent Jesus. They represent him. So when we pray for people who are in need of prayer, we're representing Jesus. We're representing him. When we love our neighbors as ourselves and give of ourselves and give of our time and our talent and our treasure to help people, we're representing Jesus. We're representing him to the world when we put ourselves in position to share the gospel by being a loving part of another human being's life, we're representing Jesus. We're representing him. But at the very core of evangelistic enterprise is that Jesus needs to be presented. He needs to be presented. So how does, G how does Paul get to the place that he can present Jesus? That's the second part of the recipe, by the way, present Jesus. How does Paul get to the place where he can present Jesus? Well, first, he establishes credibility. He establishes credibility. He lets this synagogue full of Bible readers and hearers know that he knows something. He goes ahead and recounts very carefully, quickly, without being verbose. He goes ahead and says, I know the history of our people Israel, and I know how God sent 
that set them up for their need of a savior. So he presents something as he establishes credibility. What does he say? First he says, hey, listen, God made us great in Egypt, meaning the descendants of Abraham and Sarah, who, these people who weren't able to have children, become millions in the land of Egypt, and by uplifted arm he saves them, and then what happens? For 40 years God had to put up with their sin and their distrust. So God does a mighty work, and people are like, oh, what now? That's the first thing. What does he say next? Then God gave them the land of the Canaanites, those evil child-sacrificing Canaanites. God gives them that land, and what? He needs to send judges. And why does a judge come? Because the cycle of the judge has begun. The people of Israel have forgotten God, got into a pattern of sin, started worshiping other gods, and then a judge needs to come to help deliver them from evil and also to help point them back to God. So they need, a, they need a judge. So then God sends them the best judge. His name is Samuel. Read about him in 1 Samuel chapter 1 and following, the best judge ever. And towards the end of that judgeship, what do the people do? We'd like a king. Give us a king. We don't want any more judges. We want to be like the other nations. So he gives them Saul, and Saul is tall, and Saul is handsome, and Saul is brawny, and Saul kills the bad guys. He's a, he's a king of kings, right? Except he's an egomaniac, builds himself monuments, doesn't respect the office of priest or prophet, and God removes him. And we finally get to David. David, who's a man after God's own heart, wants to do things right, wants to show that he loves God, wants the people to serve God with all their heart, but he is deeply flawed as well. But here's the good news. When the flaws of David are presented to him, he repents. Because he repents, and because he continually puts himself in position to know the Lord, God says, from you, I'm going to bring my salvation. From your posterity, as it's written in the NRSV, from your line, I'm going to bring my Savior, my Messiah, from you, David. And Paul says, this David's posterity is Jesus. Now, with that said, why did I bring all that up? Well, I brought all that up because Paul is setting them up for their need of a Savior. God does something loving and mighty on your behalf. And then human beings through their sin mess it up. And God does something mighty and loving on your behalf, and then we messed it up. So, so he's setting up their need for a Savior, but they know. They know they need a Savior. The, the, the Jewish people had been awaiting their Savior for a thousand years. They knew that there was a problem and that God had to fix it. And he says, the one who you've been waiting for, that is Jesus now, he doesn't say Jesus of Nazareth. Note that here. He doesn't say Jesus of Nazareth. That implies the folks in Pisidian Antioch had heard of Jesus. Okay, And he's going to mention John the Baptist in just a moment. That implies that they knew the ministry of John the Baptist as well. But had they heard of Jesus as Savior yet? We don't know. We're assuming not because of what Paul needs to say next. Look at verse 24 as Paul begins to defend the idea that Jesus is the Savior they've been waiting for. Before his coming, says Paul, John the Baptist had already proclaimed a baptism of repentance for all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his work, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he, no, but one is coming after me. I'm not worthy to untie the thong of the sandals on his feet. My brothers, you descendants of Abraham's family and others here who fear God, to us, the message of this salvation has been sent. Because the residents of Jerusalem and their leaders did not recognize him or understand the words of the prophet that were read every Sabbath, 
they fulfilled those words by condemning him. Even though they found no cause for a sentence of death, they asked Pilate to have him killed. And when they had carried out everything that was written about him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. And they are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the gospel. That's the same thing as good news. That what God promised to our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising Jesus. As it is also written in the second psalm, you are my son and today I have begotten you. As to his raising from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he spoke in this way. I will give you the holy promises made to David. Therefore, he said in another psalm, you will not let your Holy One experience corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, died and was laid beside his ancestors and experienced corruption. But he whom God raised up experienced no corruption. Right, that's our longest reading. But this is Paul's wise these are Paul's proofs. These are Paul's ways of defending the argument that he's making that Jesus is the Savior. He makes three main arguments here, and we'll break them down quickly. The first is this. He looks at this group in Pisidian Antioch. He says, you know John the Baptist from 20, 30 years ago? Remember that guy? You heard about his ministry? We know they'd heard about his ministry because, once again, there is no reference to his ministry. Number two, we know that the ministry of John the Baptist was not just known in Israel, but it was known as far as we know off in Ephesus, which is even further from Jerusalem. So they'd heard of John the Baptist. They knew of his ministry. John was an all-star, an ancient star, okay? He says, John said this, I'm not he, but the one who's coming after me, that's the one. Now, this is testimony of John that would have been passed down from the, from the disciples of John and passed down into the scriptures as we see. So he's saying, John the Baptist, that luminary, said the one coming after me is the one you're looking for. That's Jesus. Second thing that Paul says is a proof that Jesus is, is the one, because Jesus fulfilled what was in the scriptures. And the very fact that the people of Jerusalem fulfilled the prophecy that they would be the ones to kill the Messiah, it is right here for all to see. Paul recognized that those Jewish leaders fulfilled that prophecy that said he will be the stone that the builders or the leaders of Israel reject. The Messiah was going to be rejected. He was going to be killed. And Paul says the people in Jerusalem, they were the stiff-necked leaders who would not turn and recognize God's salvation when it came to him. And the fact that they killed him, that was the plan of God. That's the second proof. It fulfills the scriptures. Now, if they would have followed Paul after this and let him unpack more of the prophecies, he would have, and we're sure that he did because of where the story ends today. And finally, finally, he says, God raised him from the dead, which, of course, to their mind has to be, oh, right, sure. But then he takes them back to the scriptures, and he says, listen, do you, do, do you remember what you've learned in the Psalms, God's people, Israelites? Do you remember that there's this weird thing happening throughout many of the Psalms where God is speaking to David's Lord. Do you remember this, folks? Where God is speaking to David's Lord, or as David speaks to God, he's talking about his Lord. He's talking about this other person. 
this other person who somehow is going to die but never experience corruption. Who are we talking about, says Paul? Who was David referencing? Who was God referencing in the Psalms? (laughs) Paul says that was Jesus. How can you be the Lord while you're talking to God? Well, you must be talking to the very Son of God, the Holy One who will experience no corruption. And by the way, that term holy one is only used of God. So how is it that David speaking to God can speak of the holy one? He's speaking of a divine entity that's gonna die but not experience corruption. Paul knows his Bible, doesn't he? He knows how he's gonna appeal to these people, but that doesn't make it easy. This doesn't make it easy. In fact, it would have been easier if John Mark had been there. Wouldn't it have been easier to say, Jesus rose from the dead, rose from the dead. Tell him, Mark. Right? Let's see if this guy will pass the sniff test. Because he saw the resurrected Jesus. Let's see if that guy right there, they'll look at him and go, he's telling the truth. His eyes are not going a certain way. He's not fumbling his fingers. He's not giving all the tells of being a liar. He's just telling the truth and it resonates. They don't have that anymore. Paul needs to know and share his whys. He needs to be able to know and convey why he believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is the next part to the recipe. Do you know your whys? If somebody were to ask you when you leave this place, why do you go to church? What's your why? If somebody were to ask you at work tomorrow when they see a Bible on your desk, do you read that thing? What would be your whys? What would you share? And if somebody were to say something so crazy as you believe in Jesus, why? Why? Why do you? See, Paul knows and conveys his why. He's not, he's not even though his faith is in Jesus Christ, he's not committing intellectual suicide. He's not just saying, well, my faith is in Jesus, so I don't need to know my whys. No, his faith is in Jesus, so he better be able to know and share his whys. Can you know and share your whys like this? Because you ought to be able to. It's my challenge to you today. Can you know them and share them like this? And if the answer is no, when you crack your Bible tomorrow and when you begin to do your prayer time tomorrow, why don't you begin to write down your whys? Why do I go to church? Why do I read my Bible? Why do I pray? Why? Because presenting Jesus is the, is the greatest work you can do. Why would I even consider presenting Jesus? Why do I believe he's the savior of the world? Why do I believe that he raised from the dead? Is it experiential? It could be. Is it because of the fulfillment of scripture? It it could be. Is it it that that the Lord convinced you through the actions of other people, that the actions of other people were really important for your wives? That's fine, but what are they? Do you know them? Can you speak them? Because you ought to be able. Because if you're going to do the greatest work that you've been called to in the world, it's that you present Jesus. You represent him and gain credibility, and then you present him because that's the great work we're all called to. And as you present him, you will be challenged. So what are you going to say? What's going to bring it together for people? What are your whys? Have you thought about them recently? Well, I thought about them when I took an evangelism class back in the Reagan administration. Think about them again. It's time. It's time. Come to the workshop when it's next offered. We're going to offer it this spring. We'll work on your whys. We'll work on gaining credibility. We'll work on on the idea of how do we present Jesus in the modern world. And we won't tell you, you're not allowed to add onion. We'll tell you, do things that God calls you to do, but you better be able to know and share these things, or else how are you ever going to present Jesus in, in in a convincing fashion? Isn't Paul making an appeal here? He's making an appeal. 
He's trying to convince them. He's not just like, yeah, it's good for me. I hope it'll be good for you one day. I've been praying for that. No, he doesn't stop at that, that, that mentality. He's willing to go for it and share why he believes that Jesus is who Jesus said he was. And at this point, he makes his appeal. Let's read our last two smaller sections, really bite-sized pieces now, verse 38. Let it be known, therefore, my brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. By this Jesus, everyone who believes is set free from the sins from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, that what the prophet said does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, be amazed and perish, for in your days I am doing a work, a work that you will never believe, even if someone tells you. He makes an appeal, and then he says, don't miss it. How many preachers have you heard give you the don't miss it to the end of their message when they're trying to win people to Christ? He gives the don't miss it. Peter gives the don't miss it in Acts chapter 2. He says, save yourself from this corrupt generation. And with many other words, he appealed to them to come to Jesus. They make the appeal. They beg. They go for it. They really want to make sure people come to know Jesus, so they go for it. And what's the appeal here? What's Paul's appeal to this group? It's important to note. His appeal is, you Israelites, the forgiveness of sins can be granted to you in the name of Jesus Christ. That's a good appeal. It's not the only appeal, but it's a good one for this group, and I'll explain that. It's a good appeal for this group because these were Israelites who were reading the law of Moses every Sunday. Remember, they had, or Saturday, they had law and prophets. They were reading from the law. And how do you get your sins forgiven in the law? You go to the temple in Jerusalem and you make a sacrifice. So if you're living in Pisidian Antioch, how do you get your sins forgiven? If under the providence of God, you've been moved hundreds and hundreds of miles from Jerusalem, how do you get your sins forgiven? He makes an appeal directly to their heart. There's other ways to present the salvation in Jesus Christ, is there not? I just did one. Right as as we were closing out worship time, how, how does Jesus describe the great salvation that he's wrought? That if you believe in him, you'll have everlasting life. He loves you. That's a way to make an appeal. He loves you. How about John in John chapter 1? To as many as believed him, and I'm sorry, received him, and believed on his name, he gave the right to be called the children of God. There's different ways to make the appeal. They're all through scripture, right? Yes, everybody needs to be forgiven by Jesus, but this appeal matches the audience. Paul knows his audience. He knows this is where to hit him. How do you get forgiven if you're living in Pisidian Antioch? And the the answer is, we don't know. We know somehow in the providence of God that we are here living here, not in the Holy Land today, but we have no idea How to be made right with God, Paul says, I can tell you how, Jesus. The once and for all sacrifice, that's the one. And some people need this to appeal today. You've met people who are convinced they're reprobate sinners and there is no path to heaven for them. They need this appeal right here. There's other appeals that different people need. But Paul knows his audience, he makes the appeal and then he really goes for it. Don't scoff at the plan of God. Habakkuk. He's already been in in, in numbers today, now he's in Habakkuk. Paul is killing it. He knows his Bible. I don't remember the last time I read Numbers, and I read Habakkuk this week because I was forced to. He, he, he's killing it. He knows his stuff. 
so we can make the appeal. He wasn't in Zechariah or Isaiah during this sermon. Well, he probably was. He was in Numbers and Habakkuk. He knows his stuff. So he can make an appeal directly to them. Don't scoff. Don't scoff. Because his ways are not our ways. His ways are higher than our ways. His ways are higher than our thoughts. Don't scoff at the plan of God. This has always been the plan of God. Will you listen? Because those Israelites in Jerusalem did not all listen to their detriment. How about you? How about you? Is the Spirit of God moving in your heart? Is what Paul's getting them to with his appeal. Is the Spirit of God moving in your heart? Let's see about the results. Verse 42, last three verses. As Paul and Barnabas were going out, the people urged them to speak about these things again the next Sabbath. But when the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism, they followed Paul and Barnabas and spoke to them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. Keep talking. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered. I should slow down. Verse 44. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. It seems they got results. Everybody was stopping at Grandma's house for some soup. The recipe got results. The whole city. Now, you might say, I would be happy if one person would let me talk to them about Jesus. I, I would be too. But, but this, this is results here. This is results. This is results. You say, well, we're, we're the church. We can't be results driven. He who abides in me will bear much fruit. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit will be cut off. Jesus. Jesus expects results. So what ingredient is missing for you today? For those of you who have been sitting here with shine your light for months and months and have not yet made a plan, come on, come on. Do that little Bible study. It's sitting there right as you walk out today where you drop off your offering and tithes and you can just take that and you can say, God, help me to make a plan so I can work it for you. I'm not just going to try to represent you. I hope that you'll give me opportunity, Lord Jesus, to present you. Show me how I might. Show me how I might. That might be it. For some of you today, you, you might just need to remember that you've got to establish credibility with folks. And that also is a representing of Christ. Are you showing love? Are your words salt? Are they, are they, we talked about this two weeks ago, are they full of wit and wisdom? Do I have things to say that will establish credibility? Am I doing things that will establish credibility that will allow me to share who Jesus is? So, so for those of you at work that nobody knows you're a Christian and you're worried about what you might have to do if they found out you were a Christian, stop worrying about it. Just start being one and represent Jesus and establish credibility in him. Go ask forgiveness of somebody this week. That's, that's for somebody. You haven't represented Jesus. You've represented the flesh and the enemy. You need to go ask for forgiveness and see what doors that opens for you with the gospel. I don't know who that's for, but... If you want to tell me in the portico later, that would be a great confirmation. Here's the thing. We talk about 
establishing credibility ad nauseum within churches. But here's the next thing. Eventually you have to present Jesus. Is that where you're falling down? For the people that you've ministered to, loved, have you spoke his name? Have you told him, have you told somebody he's your reason for being? Have you actually said his name, presented Jesus? Is that where you're falling down? Do you know your wise? Do you know them? Have you thought about them? Have you thought about how you would say, this is why I'm sold out and believe with all my heart? Have you thought about those things? If not, take that offering envelope with you and start writing on the other side. And finally, are you willing to make an appeal? Some of you have presented Jesus, but you need to bring somebody to a point of decision. Well, that's not, that's not, my, that's not my job. That's God's job. Nope, nope, nope. Almost to a person, the evangelist of the scripture brings somebody to a decision point. That is your job. They might not receive it. It might make things weird. But some of you have presented Jesus and you need to go back and say, hey, have you thought about what we talked about the other day? Because I really wish you'd commit to Jesus being your Savior and Lord. It's a great recipe, folks. Tried and true, 2,000 years old and still being passed down to the satisfaction of many. Don't miss out on one of these things. You need them all to shine your light. So why don't we pray and ask the Lord what he's speaking to us as individuals today and ask what he'd like us to do about it. Could I ask you to bow your heads and pray with me? Five simple ideas. But there's a lot to them. There's history, hurts, hang-ups, frustrations, fears, concerns, lack of passion, all, all types of things that can keep these from becoming a reality. But would you just ask the Lord today with a humble heart, Lord, what am I missing? What is my next step if I'm to shine my light? Would you just ask him in the quietness of this moment? Father God, we started this service today telling, uh, telling ourselves, reminding you, telling ourselves how much we love you. Recapitulate.
recapitulating, re-talking about the gospel and all that you've done for us. Lord, I pray that our heart would not be to return to you only which costs us nothing, but instead out of the deep love that you've had for us, that we would respond in kind and sacrifice something of value to us to present Jesus to those who need him. Whether it be time, whether it be our pride, whether it be our fear, our apathy. Oh Lord, we sacrifice them all today before you. Make us new, Lord, so that others may come to be new. Change our ways, Lord, so that others may find satisfaction in Christ. We ask these things in the matchless and powerful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, would you join me in standing today? This may give you a fright, but if you look over your shoulder out the back window, there's something marvelous happening outside. It might not be marvelous for your drive, but it sure is pretty from here. So we hope you'll be safe on your way home today. If you do want one of those uh, Shine Your Light Bible studies, our ushers will have those in their hands ready to hand to you as you walk out today. Uh, It's a great way to start that plan and explore your whys and begin to ask God, God, what do you have me to do? And two quick words of testimony. Two weeks ago, we talked about those backyard vacation Bible schools that we'll be doing in neighborhoods. We prayed for five people to volunteer to host these. We got seven just a couple of weeks ago. And we talked about those of you who may want to lead an evangelistic Bible study in your neighborhood or your workplace. I had a a gentleman stop me last Sunday and say, so if I was going to do one of those, who would I talk to? And I said, me. (laughs) So we had frou-frou coffee drinks and plan an evangelistic Bible study. That might be you. So if if God's laying, laying stuff on your heart to be part of that vacation Bible school team or to plan one of those vacation Bible, or I'm sorry, to somebody's holding up those, uh, those uh, pieces of paper over there, or, or to uh, do that evangelistic thing within your workplace, please let us know. We'll be excited. But for now, God bless you, and go slow.